Good morning, Highlands. Happy New Year. My name is Ben Menenberg. I'm one of our staff pastors. I'm excited you've come to worship with us this morning, especially on New Year's. Maybe some of you stayed up late. I tried to go to bed uh, early, but the fireworks were, were keeping me up a little bit. Um, New Year's is an exciting time in our culture because for many of us, we're developing hopes and dreams for the coming year. We're thinking about what are the possibilities? What could take place in this next year? For some of us, we have hopes of graduating from some type of program, or maybe for a young person, making a team, maybe meeting a some, a someone special. Maybe we have hopes of starting a new job. Some of us have hopes of welcoming a child, or maybe a grandchild. Some of us have hopes of travel, or maybe finishing that house project that you've been working on for some time. You can fill in the blank. This is a special time of year because we're reflecting and dreaming about what our hopes could be for this coming year. As my grandfather, Dr. Robert Perry, about 15 years ago, he was approaching his 80th birthday and he was filled with hopes and dreams for what his retirement years would look like. Grandpa had had a good life up to this point in many ways. He had been a physician for five decades in Burien, Washington, um, caring for families. And I got to see the impact of his work firsthand. Um, oh, excuse me. Sometimes I'd be out in the community with him and we would have people come up to him and say, hey, Dr. Bob, how are you doing? It's good to see you. Thanks for being my physician. And I would get to see that firsthand. Grandpa had a beautiful wife. He had five ch uh, grown children, as well as more than a dozen grandchildren. And Grandpa, as he was approaching his retirement years, he was hoping um, to enjoy more golf. He was hoping to enjoy more travel. And he was really hoping to relax more and enjoy the fruit of the life that he had built for himself. But things didn't develop for Grandpa the way that Grandpa anticipated. Grandpa, soon after he turned 80, his wife began to be afflicted by dementia. And this developed into a decades-long battle with Alzheimer's, where Grandpa watched his bride, who was an energetic, passionate woman who was skiing black diamond moguls in her 70s, leaving the grandkids in the dust. She slowly retreated into a shell of who she had been. Grandpa's own physical health began to decline. He soon found himself confined to a wheelchair. And those dreams of golf and travel sort of went by the wayside. And Grandpa, in a particularly cruel stroke, he began to experience infighting in his family where some of his children were not in speaking terms with each other. And when there would be family gatherings, some people wouldn't come because they didn't want to be around other members of the family. So Grandpa had these hopes and he had these dreams for what retirement would look like. But the things did not develop for him the way that he was hoping. And in a manner of speaking, his hope was cut off. What about you? Do you know what it feels like to have your hope for the future cut off? Do you know what it feels like to have your dreams not develop the way that you had anticipated or had planned? Maybe you're a young person with us today and you haven't yet had your hope cut off, but are you prepared to have your hope cut off? We're all going to face different trials and challenges in our lives. And are we prepared for those things that we're planning on and hoping in? Are we prepared if they don't develop the way that we're planning? What would it be like, by contrast, to have a hope that can never be cut off? What would it be like for us to have someplace secure to place all of our hopes for the future that is like the song we sung about, an unwavering hope? We're not the first people to look for a secure place on which to place our hope. And as we're exploring in this sermon series, the ancient hope, how Jesus fulfills God's promises, we are looking at the birth narrative of Jesus from Matthew, the first two chapters of his gospel. And we're specifically, we've been looking at Jesus's lineage and we've looked at some Old Testament prophecies 
or promises that God made hundreds of years before Jesus was, Jesus was born that Matthew is saying that are now being fulfilled in Jesus. Today, we have uh, the opportunity to conclude our series and to look at the last of these prophecies from Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll be in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a beautiful scripture, and I'm looking forward to exploring it with you. We're starting off our journey, however, in the book of Matthew, where there are mothers weeping in Bethlehem. And why are the mothers weeping? They're weeping because their sons have been killed by Herod. As we left off last time, Jesus and his family escaped Herod's plan to eliminate his potential rival. But the other baby boys in Bethlehem were not so fortunate because Herod, in a cruel and vindictive stroke, orders the death of these young boys aged two and under in order to try to eliminate his potential rival, this this new potential king of the Jews. And mothers are weeping in Bethlehem. Why are they weeping? Because their sons have been killed but also because their future and their hope, and as their sons have been killed, their future and their hope has been cut off. Professor and theologian Nicholas Woltersdorf knows what it's like to lose a child. His son, Eric, died when he was 25 in a mountain climbing accident. And this professor, Nicholas Woltersdorf, wrote a short book called Lament for a Son, in which he expressed his grief for having lost his, his child. It's a short book I really recommend it if you were in, experiencing bereavement or you know someone who is. And one of the expressions of grief that Nicholas Woltersdorf writes is, he says, it's so wrong, so profoundly wrong for a child to die before its parents. It's hard enough to bury our parents, but that we expect. Our parents belong to our past. Our children belong to our future. We do not visualize our future without them. How can I bury my son, my future, one of the next in line? He was meant to bury me. He was meant to bury me. This expression of lament is what the mothers in Bethlehem are feeling. Their future, their next in line, the one who's meant to bury them, they are instead burying. And their hope has been cut off. This is not the first time that mothers have wept in Bethlehem because of lost hope due to the departure of children. During Jeremiah's day, sons and daughters of the people were forcibly removed from their homes and taken into captivity in Babylon. They were taken to a strange country with strange customs and strange gods and a strange law, and they never knew if they would return home to see their parents again. And so these parents were weeping because their children, their future, their next in line had been taken away into exile and hope was cut off for these mothers and fathers. But even more broadly speaking, hope was also cut off for the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah at this point. And why was hope cut off for Judah? The hope was cut off because they had a broken relationship, a broken covenant relationship with the Lord God. A covenant is a special relationship that God enters into to relate to his people. A covenant includes the parties to the agreement. It includes stipulations or requirements that God expects his people to follow to remain in the covenant. The covenant includes promises of blessing if the people will obey. And it also includes warnings of curses if the people disobey. And in the prophet Jeremiah's writings, he is taking the the Judeans to task for having broken the covenant relationship with the Lord, their God. They've broken the covenant. And specifically, the covenant that they've broken is the covenant that God entered into with Moses and Israel when Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus. 
In Jeremiah, he's the longest of the, the prophets, uh, actually the longest book in the Bible in terms of number of words. And one of his major themes is the broken covenant uh, that Israel is experiencing. He's rebuking them and complaining that they have broken the covenant. They are not being faithful to their God. Now, there's a lot of ground we could cover in terms of the specifics, but I just picked out a few examples of things that, Israel, that Judah was doing in order to not be faithful to the covenant. Judah had placed their hope in other gods, strange gods that they did not know. They'd placed their hopes in them. Judah had placed their hope in other nations, nations like Egypt and Assyria, rather than the Lord God. And they'd placed their hope in a superficial religion where they could live however they want during the week, and then they would come and offer a sacrifice and think that things were all right in their relationship with God. And then in one particularly powerful metaphor, Jeremiah rebukes them for building broken cisterns and neglecting the stream of living water, the Lord. Um, my wife and I, when we lived in Africa, we lived in Zambia, Africa for two years, one of our favorite things to do was to go to Victoria Falls. It's one of the seven natural wonders of the world. It's a mile-long waterfall, a mile-long waterfall between Zambia and Zimbabwe. And especially during the rainy season, the amount of water that flows over the top is amazing. But can you imagine trading the glory and beauty of Victoria Falls for a tiny water bottle? Can you imagine trading the beauty and the majesty of this huge, majestic waterfall for a water bottle? And in effect, this is what Jeremiah is rebuking the people for. They've traded the glory of the fountain of living waters, the Lord God himself. They've traded for a broken cistern that can hold no water. They've placed their hopes in things that will ultimately not ever be able to sustain them and hold them up. And they, in doing so, they've experienced a broken covenant relationship with the Lord and they're seemingly cut off from their true hope. And the consequences of this disobedience is they're now being taken into exile. God's people are cut off from the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're cut off from the law given to Moses. They're cut off from the temple built by Solomon. And they're seemingly cut off from God's promises that he made to Abraham, that he would make them a great nation and he would cause them to be a blessing. They're seemingly cut off from the promise given to David that they would always have a man on the throne in Judah. God's people are seemingly cut off from his promises. And what hope do they have? If they're cut off from these promises, what hope do they have? And it's during this moment of seeming despair and hopelessness that Jeremiah gives us something surprising. He gives us what scholars refer to as the book of lament. This is chapters 30 and 31 of Jeremiah. And in the book of consolation, Jeremiah says something surprising. He says that God, instead of rejecting his faithless covenant-breaking people, he's going to be faithful to them and he's gonna restore them to the land from captivity. God is going to restore his people. But how exactly will he accomplish this? Um, I'm thankful we've got some kids with us uh, for worship today. They can help a little bit with this next thing. Do you kids know what a treasure map is? Yeah, a treasure map is something that you use to find something valuable. You use the treasure map to find something valuable. And in Jeremiah, in chapter 31, he gives us a treasure map, and it's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device that Jeremiah is using to help us to see different sets of ideas and then find the one treasure idea in the center that he wants to convey, that he wants to draw our attention to. So this chiasm is like a treasure map. And Pastor Barry taught us about this a couple weeks ago. So some of this is, is review. Okay, so the first idea for this chiasm 
It's in verses 23 and 26. And then the second part is in verses 38 through 40 of chapter 31. God's going to rebuild Judah and its cities and he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. The temple that's now burned, the walls that are now torn down, God is going to rebuild. The second set of paired ideas is that God is going to hold Israel accountable for sin, but God's also going to be faithful to Israel. This is called a contrasting pair of ideas. These ideas are not the same. And we're left wondering, how can God do both of these things at once? How can God simultaneously hold Israel accountable for sin and also be faithful to Israel? How can he punish sin and hold covenant breakers responsible, but also be faithful to them? And the answer is found in verses 31 through 34, where God promises that he will make a new covenant with his people. And this, this is what the treasure map, the chiasm is drawing our attention to, that God will be faithful and he's making a promise of a new covenant to Israel and to Judah. So if you brought your Bible, I'm gonna invite you at this point, if you haven't already, to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. If you didn't bring your Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you and you can find where we're gonna be at on page 700. When you're reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses. So we're gonna be in chapter 31 and verses 31 through 34. And I'm gonna go ahead and recite the passage for you and then we'll, we'll talk about it. This is where we'll spend most of the rest of our time. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. For behold, this is the covenant I will make with Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws within them and upon their hearts I will write them. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his brother or each man his fellow citizen saying, know the Lord, but they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. So at first blush, this new covenant includes some incredible, incredible promises. God's being faithful to his faithless people, Israel and Judah, and he's making them new promises. He's saying, I will write my laws on their hearts. I will forgive their sins. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them, and I will be their God. They will be my people. These are incredible promises. But before we look closely at the specifics of these promises, there's one lingering question to address. And that question is, what is going to become of the old covenant? What is God going to do to resolve the demands of the old covenant that sin be punished, that covenant breakers be held accountable? How is God going to tie up that loose end while also inaugurating this new covenant? And the answer to this is later on in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 26, we started our journey in Matthew chapter two. Matthew looks to Jeremiah 31 to explain an event. And now he's looking to Jeremiah 31 again at the last supper. And Matthew records, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So how are the demands of the old covenant fulfilled? They're fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. As we sang about a few songs ago, he's the new and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. 
He is the true Israelite who has perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the old covenant. He loved the father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself and he lived a perfect sinless life and he was entitled to the covenant blessing. But what's he saying at the last supper? He's saying that he's going to give his body and his blood. And in effect, he's going to receive the covenant curse instead of the covenant blessing. Why is that? The author of Hebrews gives us another insight into the intersection of this old and this new covenant. And Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus has died for the transgressions of those committed under the first covenant, those committed by Israel and Judah, yes, but also the transgressions committed by you and me. And his death fulfills the demands of the old covenant. And therefore, while he has earned the covenant blessing, he instead receives the covenant curse, but trades places with us so that we receive the covenant blessing while he receives the covenant curse. And theologians refer to this as substitutionary atonement, where Jesus died in our place for our sins. And so we can receive the covenant blessing. And just as his blood satisfied the demands of the old covenant and our prior scripture in Matthew, his blood also inaugurates the new covenant. His his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for the new covenant. And so how does this new covenant then offer hope that cannot be cut off to us, to God's people? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time is looking at four promises from Jeremiah 31 that offer us an unshakable hope as we enter 2023, yes, but also for every day of life. So the first of these promises is that God promises to give his people a new start. God promises to give his people a new start. If we look in Jeremiah 31 uh, 31, verse 34, he says, I'll be merciful to their iniquities. Their sins I will remember no more. So in effect, he's giving them a new start. When I sin, I don't know about you, but I'm generally aware of it. Um, Sometimes I should be more aware of it than I am, but generally speaking, I have some awareness when I've sinned or when I've let people down or I haven't done what I've been tasked to do. And I don't generally like to be reminded of it because I'm already uh, wrestling with the guilt and thinking about it myself. And under the old covenant, one of the characteristics of that old covenant is that there was continual sacrifices and there was in effect a reminder of sins year by year as the sacrifices were continually offered. And God's people, they were being reminded of the weight of their sin and the separation it was causing between them and the Lord. There was that continual reminder of sin through the sacrifices. By contrast, in the new covenant, God promises to address sin once and for all. He says, I'll be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. And he has made good on this promise through the death, through the sinless life and through the death of Jesus Christ in order to redeem his people from their sins. This single sacrifice, it pays the penalty for all time for the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. And this promise was encouraging to me as a new Christian. Um, I don't know about you, but when I started following the Lord in my early 20s, I still had some patterns of sin in my life I was trying to work out. I was in a small group. I was praying. I was reading the Bible. I was doing everything the right way, but there was still some sin or some patterns in my life that needed to be worked out over a period of time. And I can remember sometimes just feeling guilty about that. I can remember feeling 
guilty going and asking God for forgiveness for this thing that I'd already asked him about forgiveness for for the umpteenth time and I'm coming again. Will he really forgive me? Will he really forgive me this time? This promise offers us assurance that yes, he will forgive. He will remember our sins no more. And as a mature, more mature Christian, I'm still maturing, um, been walking with the Lord for almost two decades, I still am uncovering areas of hidden sin in my life or in my heart. I've, by the Lord's help, I've gotten some victory over sin, but there's other areas that the Lord reveals to us that we see hidden patterns of sin in our heart or in our thoughts and our motives. And this promise offers us assurance for that as well, that just as um, God was faithful to forgive our sins when we first came to him and first believed in Jesus and first put our hope in him, he'll continue to be faithful all the way until we're with him face to face. He'll be faithful to forgive our sins, past, present, and future. This is an unshakable hope that we have. The second hope that we have is that Jeremiah promises God will give us a new heart. God promises to give us a new heart. And he says it this way, I will put my laws within them and in their hearts, I will write them. It's in verse 33 of chapter 31. I will put my laws within them and in their hearts, I will write them. Under the old covenant, God took his people by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And if you know that story, you know that God's people were not always living by faith in what he was doing. God did these miraculous signs, 10 signs and wonders to lead the people out. He split the Red Sea so they walked through on dry land. He provided them water and manna in the desert. But God's people sometimes still responded in unbelief. So when it says that he took them by the hand, in some ways he took them by the hand, kicking and screaming, resisting the work that he was trying to do in their midst. Because at that point, God's law was on tablets of stone. It was on the, the Ten Commandments were on tablets of stone. It hadn't yet penetrated to the stoniness of their hearts. God's law was external to them. To them, under the new covenant, things are different. God is internalizing His law within His people. He's writing His laws within them and putting them on their hearts. We will no longer love. Uh, we will no longer obey God merely outwardly or just externally. Just to impress people or impress God, but we'll actually be changed on the inside. We'll obey out of joyful gratefulness because of who God is and what he's done. This new covenant is not about behavior modification. It's about complete and inner transformation and renovation of our hearts. This process, the Bible calls sanctification. And that's just what it is. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's a process. Sometimes I wish that it was like the matrix where you get plugged in and you know Kung Fu instantly and you just go on your way and you're, you're sanctified. You desire to obey God. But it is a process. And this reminds me of what the process of parenting is like. I'm blessed with four wonderful sons. Uh, they're aged 15 and I have twin seven-year-olds and then I have a five-year-old. One of the things I've learned about parenting young children is sometimes you have to repeat a command again and again and again. I hear some laughter out there, so maybe you know too. <laughs> it's not just me. Um, sometimes you're asking, Johnny, can you put away your toothbrush? And you're asking again and again and again. Johnny, can you get ready for school? Or Susie, can you put your backpack away? Or can you come to the table for dinner? And at that point in the child's development, sometimes you can tell the obedience is not necessarily with a willing heart. There's, there's dad or mom's command coming to them externally, but inside their heart, they're still in that process of learning to obey. There's still that resistance and sometimes that stiff-neckedness that we all had when we were children. But by God's grace, what we're trying to do as parents is shepherd not only the outward behavior, 
but also their hearts so that they want to do the right thing. And by God's grace, I have seen a transformation take place in my oldest son. Um, He's 15 now, and I don't need to tell him to get in the shower like I used to. I don't need to tell him to load the dishwasher like I used to, or to take out or bring in the garbage like I used to ask him to do. Because there's been a process where he has begun to internalize some of these things in his heart. He's not just doing them because dad told me to do them, but there's a desire on his part to want to do them. And I get about this much credit for that. Most of the credit is to the Lord for the transformation. But this is what we strive for as parents. We want our children to have the desire to obey. And this is a picture of the difference between the old and the new covenant. Under the old covenant, God's law is external. And our obedience may sometimes be only outward. It may not be what's actually going on in our, in our heart. But what God desires and what he's doing in the new covenant is he promises a new heart so that our obedience is internalized, so that we obey because we desire to do so, because he is changing us from the inside. So I want to encourage you with the hope that we're all works in process. Again, this is not an instantaneous thing where you believe in the Lord and you put your hope in him and all of a sudden you want to obey. That hasn't been my experience. It's not for most of the people I know. But what I see is a gradual process of sanctification and change over time where God is writing his laws on my heart and changing me. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel um, that conviction, like maybe I am not doing as well as I should, that still is a sign that you're in the fight, that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and God will finish his promise. He will create that new heart within you. So I want to encourage you with that unshakable hope this morning. The third unshakable hope that I would like to encourage you with is from Jeremiah 31, is that we are invited to become a part of God's people. We're invited to become a part of God's people. Jeremiah says it like this, I will be their God, they will be my people. Under the old covenant with Israel, God chose to work through one human family. He started with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and soon the entire nation of Israel was entering into covenant relationship with the Lord. God chose to work through one human family. And we see in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant is likewise promised to that same family, to Israel and to Judah. So is this covenant promise, these new covenant promises made to Israel and Judah, is this good news for us? What if we're not of Jewish background and ancestry? What if we're not from Israel or from Judah? The answer is yes, this is good news for all people. Because we see at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus Our mediator and the one who has inaugurated the new covenant says, go and make disciples of all nations. He tells his disciples not just to make disciples from Jewish people, but from those of all nations. Jesus is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for himself and for the Father. He's gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all people are invited through faith to trust in him and to be a part of these new covenant promises. And these promises can offer us unshakable hope because when we're invited to be part of God's people, we're not just by ourselves. We're part of a family. We're invited to join a family which has brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles and mothers and fathers. Jesus is our elder brother and we have our heavenly father. You don't have to go through the joys and challenges of life on your own. You're invited to be a part of this new covenant people, to be a part of God's people. And this is a diverse people where, again, from every tribe, tongue, and nation are welcome. One of my uh, richest experiences in life, drawing, drawing back again from Zambia, is when living in Zambia, we worshiped as part of a local Zambian church. And it was so encouraging to hear people sing praises to God in other languages. 
and to see them live out obedience faithfully within their cultural context. And it's something that we just prayed for the team in Costa Rica to experience as they go on their mission trip next week. And this is the new covenant promise that we get to be a part of this new covenant people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, this diverse group of saints who are united by our faith in Christ. And our fourth promise from Jeremiah 31, which offers us unshakable hope, is that we can know God personally. We can know God personally. And Jeremiah says it like this, that they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Under the old covenant, access to God was restricted in some manner of speaking. The priest could come into God's presence in the tabernacle or in the temple at certain times by following certain procedures, but the common people could not come into God's presence. In the new covenant, however, things are different. We can enter boldly into God's presence because the way has been made through Jesus's blood, as the author of Hebrews writes. Jesus has made a new and living way that we have access to come into God's presence. And this difference in access, it reminds me of my experience this last summer. My wife and I took our four sons to the White House as part of our trip to Washington, D.C. And I don't know if you've done the White House tour, but it's pretty neat. In order to access the White House and to access this tour, you need help of a mediator. You need to write to your congressperson. You need to give them your social security number, your passport, your detail, all that information because they need to make sure you're safe. Um, and then you need to uh, give them your travel dates and they come back to you and say, okay, you can come this date and this time. And when you go into the White House, you have to go through two security checkpoints and then you have a very uh, restricted um, agenda and rooms that you can go see on the east side of the White House. But you're not able to go see the West Wing you don't get to see the Oval Office and you don't get to meet the president. Contrast that with the access that my sons, Noah, Nehemiah, Nathaniel, and Nicholas have to me. My sons, if they need me, they don't need to write their congressperson. They can tug on my arm. Not during the sermon. <laughs> they can come tug on my arm. They can pick up the phone and call me. My sons, if they are hungry, they know they can come ask my wife and I. We'll help them find some food to eat. Or if they need some comfort, they can come find us and we'll, we'll, we'll comfort them. Whatever they need, they know they have access to come boldly to us. And this is the same type of new covenant access that Jeremiah is promising us, that we can know God personally. We can come boldly before our Heavenly Father because of what Jesus has done in opening a new and living way for us through his blood. So summing up these four promises, we have a new start God offers to forgive our sins fully and forever. We have a new heart. He promises to write his law upon our hearts and to change us from the inside out. We are offered and invited to be a part of his people by faith in Jesus. And we're offered the hope of knowing him personally. These are four unshakable hopes that we can put our faith and confidence in the first day of 2023, yes, but every day of our Christian walk. These are four things you can put your hope in. Now, what we often find, though, at least I find for myself, is sometimes our hope is not in those unshakable things. And my question for you and for me is, where have you placed your hope? Where have you placed your hope? Pastor and author Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, has some, a series of diagnostic questions that we can use to ask ourselves and to evaluate where have we truly placed our hope. The first of these questions is, where does your imagination go? Where does your imagination go? 
When you're in the comfort and privacy of your own mind, when no one knows what you're thinking, where do your thoughts most often land? What are you most often meditating on? One or two daydreams is not necessarily a sign that all your hope is in that thing you're thinking about. But if you're consistently thinking about something, it could be a person, it could be a job, it could be you fill in the blank. If your thoughts consistently go there, you may have found what your true hope is. The second question is, how do you spend your money? How do you spend your money? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul describes a people who are so marked by generosity that they give to the poor beyond their means. Does that usage of money describe me? Does it describe you? Or like me, maybe sometimes you're tempted to spend more money on yourself or on your children or on things like status symbols or vacations or you fill in the blank. Our money can be a good sign of where we've placed our hope. The third question is, how do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? How do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? If you ask for something that you don't get, you may be able to move on quickly and say, that's okay. That wasn't where my ultimate hope was. But if you find yourself asking God for something and not getting it and responding in anger or in responding in despair, that can be a signal for your hope. If you have explosive anger or deep despair when you don't get what you asked for from the Lord, that could be a sign of where you've placed your real hope. By contrast, the promises of Jeremiah 31 offer us unshakable places to put our hope. And I want to ask you, what, does it look, what might it look like for you to take steps of faith to rest in these promises this year? So the first one, having a new start. Maybe for you, that might look like walking in repentance and confession. It might mean finding a trusted brother or sister or a trusted community group where you can share what's really going on in your life. God promises us if we confess our sins, where he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess our sin, we can rest assured in the hope that God knows us and loves us. He's demonstrated that he loved us because he sent his only son. And when we walk in the light in a community, we can also be loved and known by that community. So that offers us hope. If we walk in repentance and confession, we can walk in the light. We can live with a clear conscience. The second place where we might place our hope in this coming year is a new heart. And what might that look like for you? Maybe for you, that looks like either continuing or starting new spiritual disciplines. Maybe it looks like having that daily time in God's word or in prayer. As I mentioned before, that process of getting a new heart is just that. It's a process. So one of the ways that we access God's grace is through his word. It's through prayer. That's the means that we access the grace. Um, and so I want to encourage you um, to engage in those spiritual disciplines. Sanctification is a process, and these are the means that we can use to have an unshakable hope that God will change us when we access his word and we access his presence in prayer. The third promise that I want to point you to for this coming year and want to ask you, what would it look like for you, is to be a part of God's people. Maybe for you, it might mean joining a community group this year. Maybe it might mean joining a serve team. Each of us has been given a gift or more than one gift by God for the building up of his people. And the unshakable hope we have is that we can be a part of God's people. We can use our gift to both give 
and then we can receive from others in the church what their gifts are. So I want to invite you to be a part of God's people in this coming year. And then lastly, we have the opportunity to know God personally. We have the opportunity to know God personally. And what might that look like for you? Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. It's continuing, persevering in your faith in this coming year. For some of you, it might mean meeting the Lord for the first time. Just like my grandfather. My grandfather, soon after my grandmother began to be ill, she also began to rediscover her faith in Christ that she had from childhood. And my mom would go pick her up and bring her to church and grandpa would come and he'd pick her up in the parking lot and take her home. And my mom is a very wonderful, persistent evangelist. And she kept saying, dad, why don't you come into church with us sometime? Why don't you come in? And so eventually grandpa did come in. You can see from the picture, this is a picture of us in 2015 in December, Christmas Eve, I believe, at the worship center. And grandpa started to come and worship with us. We'd move a chair out of the way so we could fit his wheelchair in. Grandpa would come to the adult Bible class. And some of you in this room now, you knew my grandfather. You knew his story. Grandpa came to Discover Highlands. He started meeting with Pastor Barry to go through the Gospel of John. And at the age of 88, for the first time, my grandpa placed his hope in Jesus Christ. And we can applaud that. <laughs> grandpa traded these lesser hopes, which could never bear the full weight of his desires for a greater hope. He traded his lesser hopes for a greater hope. And what I want to invite you and me to do in this coming year, whether you don't yet know the Lord, whether you're new in your relationship with him, or whether you've been walking with him for a long time, I want to invite you to place your hope in him this year. And in the, in the years to come, I want to invite you to place your hope in these unshakable promises that he will give you a new start, that he will give you a new heart, that you can know him personally, that you can be a part of his people. So I want to invite you and invite myself to take these steps of faith. So as we conclude our service today, I'd like to pray for you that God will help us with these things. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you for being a faithful covenant-making God, where we acknowledge that you have been faithful to your people from the beginning. You've been faithful to Israel. You've been faithful to Judah, and you've been faithful to us. God, we also want to acknowledge that we at times have been faithless, or at times you've had to take us by the hand because our hearts were stony and hard. But Lord, we thank you that you have been persistent in your love. You've sent your only son to redeem us, to give us the covenant blessing. And Lord, we pray that these promises that we've talked about from Jeremiah 31, Lord, the promise of a new start and a new heart, that we can be a part of your people and that we can know you personally. Lord, help these promises to become real and actualized in each of our lives and our hearts. Help each of my brothers and sisters to take steps of faith in this, these coming days, Lord, to, um, to walk in the light, to access these promises as part of community, to be transformed and to know you personally. So we ask for these things and we thank you for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, please stand and conclude and worship with us.